Thanks for tuning in to Accelerated Startup Academy. On this episode, I wanted to talk about the humanity in the non-essential. And the interview is on deal-making with Alex Patrikov. He led business development at Evernote for its first decade and is now CEO of Sunflower Labs, one of the coolest security startups in the world. He also happens to be my oldest friend. Here we go. This is episode two. Thank you for joining. I am your host, Vitaly Golem, author of the best-selling book by the same name, Accelerated Startup. I've advised many successful startups, accelerators, venture funds, and even some of the Fortune 100. I started as a young entrepreneur in Silicon Valley and now help fast-growing companies raise money and find exits via M&A. Accelerated Startup Academy digs deep into practical and tactical advice from some of the best subject matter experts. My goal is to help you unleash your potential by turning your ideas into products and those products into great tech companies. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe on YouTube or in your favorite podcast app to be the first to know when future episodes drop. We'll soon jump into the interview with Alex Pachkov, CEO of Sunflower Labs, about deal making. But first, let's talk about what makes us human. We are in the midst of the largest civil unrest in America in a generation. Though the direct cause is yet another police murder of a black man, much like an airplane crash, the situation spun out of control for a number of combined factors. As I record this, San Francisco Bay Area is well into week 10 of shelter in place. Some parts of the world shut down earlier, some later. In almost all regions, this has meant the same thing. Don't leave your house for anything but needs deemed essential, such as grocery, healthcare, banks, gas stations, and a few other categories that comprise the basic backbone of our modern society. Though in comparison to being displaced by a war or major natural disaster, it seems staying home and binging Netflix is easy. It has been tremendously difficult on many people's psyche as they've lost their normal routines and their sense of purpose. For black people in America, this crisis has compounded with the normal health crisis of living black in America. It is no surprise that the pandemic has affected the black and brown communities particularly severely, both in mortality and unemployment rates. Let's talk about mental health. Entrepreneurs have made unhealthy habits of tying their sense of identity to the companies they build. But the same can be said about people who draw purpose from any number of all-engrossing professions. Bankers, lawyers, and doctors are notorious for spending far more than the average 40 hours a week working. And the privilege of being able to do so only comes after many years of singularly focused education. The creative world is not much different. As the saying goes, the only way to get to Carnegie Hall is to practice, practice, practice. Even then, most creatives don't even reach the pinnacle of making a full-time living from their craft. Who am I? Is the question teenagers have been asking themselves since the Stone Age. The pandemic has sickened millions and killed hundreds of thousands. The economic shutdowns it has caused not only devastated many financially, but forced them to rethink their entire sense of identity. The new question has become, am I essential? While most kids have dreams of one day defining themselves as astronauts or firefighters, actors or doctors, most adults find life is really defined by a series of non-sequitur life choices. A midlife crisis is essentially coming to grips with the fact that you've ended up somewhere you didn't expect and at once feeling like you don't have enough time to achieve those dreams you once had. For minorities, this effect is measurably worse. They are simply falling out of society at an alarming rate. The historic job losses and massive shifts of work environment for those still employed result in a collective reset 
the likes of which we haven't experienced since World War II. Given the real-time nature of modern society, the speed of this shift is unlike anything we've ever experienced before. As I first engrossed myself in studying the state of artificial intelligence years ago, I began to understand just how transformative and fast this particular industrial revolution will be. It scared me. Society is focused on petty arguments while the metaphorical frog is boiling. Alarm bells are not being heard while statistics show us that we are just a decade away from the optimistic case of just 15% of our workforce having to retrain entirely. Sure, new technology will provide new opportunities we can't even imagine now, but empirically the transition is too fast to prevent those who cannot retrain from suffering severe economic consequences. Especially since the cost of college tuition has more than doubled in the last 30 years. Andrew Yang brought this issue into the mainstream of American politics and successfully simplified the message for the masses. Never mind the inequities, given the economic shifts on the horizon, it became even clearer that our system is not sustainable for the majority of the population. The first and second industrial revolutions unfolded over the course of three generations. The AI revolution is happening at the blinding speed of one generation. The pandemic is compressing this to nearly instantaneous. As companies are coming back from the pandemic shutdown lows, they're finding they can't generate the same level of business with fewer people. In fact, a May 5th, 2020 study by Becker Friedman Institute at the University of Chicago projects that 42% of the 30 million plus American jobs lost since March will be permanent. In retrospect, it is not difficult to guess why investors drove the stock market to such a fast recovery. Tech giants are consolidating their gains, others are reducing costs and finding more efficiency in operations, while many who have been buying back shares instead of fortifying their balance sheets are expecting gracious government rescue packages. Most of this at the cost of taxpayers and municipal budgets who are in dire need of support and will not get it. The inequities are being accelerated in mere months before our eyes. As countries are continuing to come out of hibernation and people begin to rebuild, I fear many will continue to self-identify as non-essential. In the past week, calls to suicide hotlines have increased 800%. Suicide rates have increased with every past economic downturn. 2020 may very well set a record. The civil unrest is bound to have unpredictable effects. Hopefully, at least some of them are positive. So where do we go from here? If we look at past philosophical musings on the positive effects of the AI revolution, we can expect a renaissance in creativity as people free up their time for menial tasks. However, the future of unlimited free time seems to be here for many and we are not nearly ready for it. Andrew Yang was proven right much faster than he expected, even faster than Mike Judge who wrote and directed the film Idiocracy in 2006. Coincidentally, what makes us human is the fundamentally non-essential. Taking care of chores is not what inspires us and makes us want to jump out of bed in the morning. It is music, movies, sports, traveling, tasty food, entrepreneurship, competition, learning, and new experiences. Humanity is creativity. I can't say we are headed into uncharted territory because we are already swimming in it. The siren songs of escapist entertainment can only keep the masses calm for so long. We need to make immediate changes to support a large group of people who have suddenly fallen out of the workforce. Not someday, not in 10 years, now. We no longer have the choice or the luxury of procrastinating the development of that support system. Automation and the irrelevance of numerous labor categories that come with it is inevitable. To avoid complete societal breakdown, we must rebuild with a sober look at the future not the past. We have an opportunity to do it right and build a foundation to support a whole new societal structure that is at once more inclusive. One that provides the necessary safety nets for people to focus their energy on creative pursuits that truly make us human. Alex and I have known each other since we were kids. We worked on many things together, even started some companies. We fought over a girl as teenagers. We argued about Tesla now. 
Uh, I have a huge amount of admiration and respect for Alex's thoughtfulness in the tech world, which is why I asked him to share some of his experiences with you today. These days, he's a specialist in emerging trends in robotics and security industries. He is the CEO of Sunflower Labs, a drone-based home security startup he co-founded in 2016. Before assuming the role, Alex was a member of the founding team of Evernote and held position as VP of Partnerships, Business Development, and Developer Relations. He brings decades of experience in technology evangelism with the goal of promoting partnerships and integration for complementary products and services. Here is our discussion on getting deals done. Welcome to Accelerate Startup Academy. So let's dive right in. As a person that's been around for a little while, in the startup world and has uh, closed a number of deals and traveled the world doing so with a uh, number of different projects, both in software and hardware. I'm hoping you can share lots of insights today with our audience. Let's start with how do you organize your time and process for business development? You probably first want to kind of have your goals. So you organize your time based on what you're trying to achieve. The business development could be could take different forms. Business development could be um, essentially a form of sales where your company has something and business development is a more high-touch version of sales, maybe with an integration or customization angle or something like that, um, in which case, you know, that's one route that you would take. Or business development could be... Uh, essentially what's called the strategic business development where you're looking for for partnerships and for kind of win-win situations and um, these would be more opportunistic these would be kind of things that you would need to network more for kind of have a connection until one day maybe something pops up or something works out and you would pursue that as a as a deal so there's kind of two there's two sides to it the side that i practiced the most was the the more strategic aspect of it so i've done a lot of strategic integration deals uh custom development with partners co-branding things of that nature and the way you would organize that is you want to have your end goal in mind so whatever is your metric you're trying to hit and you work backwards from that so uh in the early days uh, at evernote the metric that we were most interested in was new users so uh new users coming into the to the product and so everything in the early days was geared toward how do you put together a partnership that's such a way that drives new users, right? And if you work backwards from that, everything else kind of pours out of it. So does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think it's a good place to start because for a lot of startups that are really at early stages, you know, it's a little bit of Schrodinger startup because you have a lot of these companies started by engineers that really don't have these soft skills or any background in sales and they're kind of starting from scratch. So I think this will be really interesting to start digging into. So one of the things that comes up the most, what's the most effective thing you found to get people to respond to you when you're reaching out, when you're doing cold calls, or maybe you're asking for intros? What are some of the most effective ways to actually get somebody on the other side? Short emails, three lines. You know, as soon as, as, soon as you get a block of text, you know, the chances of the person responding or me responding and somebody reaching out to me with a block of text diminishes by the length of the email because as much as it could be interesting, I might need to think, oh, I need to read it later, you know, get into the detail of it or, you know, I'm on my phone, I'm just kind of scanning through it. If the email is short and essentially has one ask, I don't know, let's get on the phone, let's meet, you know, take a look at this, that is much more actionable. So I've learned sort of the hard way from sending long lengthy emails to people with, you know, bullet points and paragraphs and having that ignored to literally just three line email saying, you know, hey, we, we want to do this with you. Um, you know, click here if you want to take a look at what, what our product is. And that to me has always been a much better return. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I think that's one of the things that I see a lot of entrepreneurs make a mistake, uh, especially again with an engineering background. They want to be very thorough and almost over communicate the information uh, just by bad habit, so to say, when they don't realize that there's just one goal is get somebody on the phone and have an opportunity to build that relationship. Now, speaking of that, um, you know, early days, again, you have to choose your battles, right? So how do you stay focused on the right opportunities, but also don't let go of things that you think are going to be interesting in the future and relevant and kind of put them on the back burner? How do you kind of manage that communication and, and how do you maintain those relationships over some period of time? I'm not a big believer in maintaining a relationship over a long time. I actually get quite annoyed with people who are just you know, meet for lunch and they kind of get nothing. You know, they just want to stay up to date. Everyone's busy. So um, if you've made a connection to somebody, if uh, you, you've had a good relationship in the past, maybe you've done a deal together, maybe you work together, oftentimes reconnecting even years later is is the same it's like you know i haven't seen some of my old friends for five years ten years and you know when i see them it's we pick up where we left off so like almost as a courtesy to the people that i work with i don't go out and just bug them randomly but every once in a while if maybe something particularly interesting that's happening that you want to share uh i would typically rely more on social media to 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 do that so posting something on linkedin for your professional network or on facebook if that's where your your network is that occasional touch you know where people just maybe see something and they like it you know that's enough to freshen the memory of you know who the hell you are so then when you do reconnect with this person like oh yeah it's that that one guy that's good insight. I think everybody has their own style and, it, and it's always kind of a little bit of panic mode when people try to be very, very thorough and complete again and, and they get a little bit uh, anxious when they have to prioritize who they communicate with. Now, uh, with this function largely being sales and business development, there's certainly an element of marketing support and building a brand and kind of building that trust. What can you share about kind of the importance of uh, building that brand and investing in that? If you had to choose early on where you put your resources, time, money, how would you kind of manage the whole process of, of putting in that support on the marketing side to help uh, deals get closed? You want to have... So it kind of depends on your situation. So if your boss who puts you up to doing this business development wants you to succeed, there absolutely needs to be a support network behind you. Uh, give you an idea, you know, if you're doing, and I'm not sure if anybody's doing this anymore, but we did a lot of pre-installed deals at Evernote, you know, with Samsung, with Sony, with uh, HTC and so forth. The pre-installed deals typically go hand in hand with uh, some engineering work so you might have a custom integration there is a, a widget or a, a button that needs to be placed on the phone and it usually goes hand in hand with testing so if you give somebody a build to pre-install they're going to go through it with a with a fine-tooth comb and and find all sorts of bugs for it so if you are just a business development guy there's nothing you can really do like you're not going to improve the app the deal's going to fall apart literally at the worst possible moment after you already have the deal when you're delivering stuff and when they just don't accept it. And we've literally had this happen where we're supposed to be pre-installed on Galaxy S3 or something like that. And, you know, the week before their image freezes, they discover some small issue and we're not able to fix it in time. And so you get dropped from that, from um, the, the image, which goes onto that phone. So stuff like that is awful because you've put in so much effort into it. But uh, when we did deals, I always had at least one engineer. Uh, this is mostly on Android side. So with an Android engineer who can, who can jump on things really quickly. And I always had a designer because any of the 
benefit of the partnership is going to come with the materials that come with it. Just being pre-installed is of marginal value, but being promoted, having some flyers in there, having some other marketing material, email campaigns, which will go along with it. All of these things will require support from your, your marketing team, your design team, you know, and, and of course your engineering team. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's, that's very helpful. I think having that support network uh, around you really is uh, key to getting these deals closed and across the finish line. Nothing's more frustrating than spending all that time just for it to fall apart in a way that you can't control. You know, obviously, startups uh, primarily are doing deals with companies bigger than them. And the bigger the company, the slower they move. Uh, that's a very common situation. And just the time scale is different between large companies, corporates and, and startups. And we've been on both sides. How do you deal with that? You know, how do you motivate and how do you move that deal along without being annoying or sounding desperate uh, with these corporate um, counterparts on the other side of it when their timing is, is very, very slow? What, what are some of your thoughts on that? I don't necessarily think it's slow. It's sort of, it's slow and then it's fast, right? So the deal is going to be done not based on uh, what I want, but based on what the partner is going to want, you know, in conjunction with what we can deliver. So I might want to deal really badly, but if it's no use to them, there is no motivator for them to be able to get this deal done immediately, then, you know, yeah, it's it's going to be one of these things where they kind of keep pushing it out. Generally, there is a moment in a, in a discussion that you would feel you have to live kind of vicariously through them. Like, what is it that they're trying to accomplish? Why are they even talking to you, right? And uh, in some of the cases that we've done uh, in the partnership we've done before, the we were bringing value. So they're going to ship a product. They want to increase the perceived value of the product. In this case, they included Evernote Premium or something like that. And, you know, that that is a way for them to show that this $200 device has, you know, an additional $50 or whatever of value on it. And typically, they have a deadline too, right? This device is going to be shipping. The materials need to be sealed in. So what often happens is it's slow, it's slow, you're not sure. And then they agree. And then suddenly it's fast, 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 right? They need everything done. They need everything yesterday, you know, and that's too late uh, for you to deliver it. So I, I would say my issue wasn't that when the deals were slow. My issues were more when the deals gotten really, really fast. I got, I got you. So that's a little counterintuitive as well. Yeah, I, I see a lot of frustration and obviously startups, uh, they think, you know, again, when they're just starting out and dealing with large companies for the first time, they, they think that everything should be moving as fast as startups make decisions. But unfortunately, that's not so. Hold on. But from the moment that something like Samsung locks down, they're going to decide, okay, they're going to ship this phone. They're going to ship it on this particular day because they're going to announce it at MWC, or, you know, back in the before, you know, we had things like that. Um, it's not going to be a problem. Okay, that's not a problem anymore. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, yeah, this is just like a bygone era. But uh, they're going to decide, they're going to announce this phone February, whatever. Uh, that basically means it's locked in December, maybe even earlier, right? So when you do this deal and they tell you uh, that you're going to be part of it, then their speed is going to blow you away because they're, they're a machine where thousands of people are freaking out and they're going to ship this on time and their, their heads are going to roll, right? And you actually, as a startup, you know, you have much less risk. You know, okay, you don't ship on this phone, you ship on the other one, right? So, so, so believe me when I say that, it's, um, it, when that table flips, that flip side is actually much more, much more frustrating. That's really interesting. And, and so how do you deal, you know, a lot of these deals these days, everything's pretty much global, how do you deal with the cultural, the language differences, you know, and that aspect of it when, you know, the deals are highly personal, right? So you need to understand the person. And I, I've seen a lot of people that get really frustrated because they don't understand the other culture or the deal just does, just breaks apart just for simple reason of misunderstandings. 
uh, you've been successful uh, for many years dealing with uh, with Asian partners, European partners, etc. What are some of the things you've seen? You know, what worked for you? What didn't work for you? Um, every culture is going to be a little bit different, and the way you're going to do those deals, and the way those deals actually get approved, is is different. So if you so we've done a lot of business in Japan. I've been to Japan 35 times during the course of you know my my career doing this, and the reason I was there so much is because so much more is done in person. You know, if you're sitting across the table for three four hours, you can get everything sorted as opposed to having conference calls. So I know that. You know, that's not a possibility, at least in the near future, to, to do face-to-face -face deals. But, man, there were just situations when you've had three calls, there's 10 people on the call, and nobody knows what the hell is going on. Nobody understands it. And then I just got on the plane, and I've flown to Japan for one day. I've literally got on the plane in the evening, uh, landed in Japan, spent the night. The next day, full day of meetings. At the end of the day, go to the airport, and I'm back here. Only when I did that where I could see, feel a breakthrough. Whereas you can have endless number of conference calls scheduled or standing meetings or whatever you might have and, and just nothing will move. But then if you tell them, if you send them a note, say, hey, I'm, I'm flying out, I'll be there tomorrow, then suddenly all of the stuff light, lights up, right? And everybody, you know, they don't want to waste your time flying out there. And of course, they're going to get all these things done. So, so a lot of that, uh, a lot of in-person has helped me a lot. Um, and then one other aspect about uh, in Japan in particular is that oftentimes the deals in big companies are consensus driven. So if there's 10, you know, senior executives who are going to approve your deal and one of those isn't like he's not saying no, but he's saying like maybe or he has a question. Essentially, it's a no. Everybody says no. Right. So what I often spend time is trying to chase down like who is the blocker, like who is it and maybe not just who, but what is the particular concern that they're that they're worried about and address that concern? Because, you know, it's easy again to waste your time. But if there's one particular concern and oftentimes it's something like privacy or something like that, then you have to figure out exactly what is stopping the deal, deal with that one explicit thing the best that you can to, to push it through. Yeah, that's great. You actually uh, covered partially one of my other questions, which was, you know, now we're in a new reality, right? Before salespeople would get on a plane and go somewhere for a day, I've done it also, just uh, go somewhere, fly for 12 hours each direction just to have a one hour meeting because you know that one hour meeting will get things done. Let's let's break this question into two parts. So before, you know, when did you know that it was time to go and build that personal relationship and get on a plane and, and talk to somebody versus kind of warm it up via phone calls and conferences? And then now, what do you think, you know, with the new reality world in uh, for the foreseeable future, how do you think that's going to change? Well, um, it's going to change in the sense that, you know, even if you're having a meeting with somebody next door, you're probably doing it over Zoom. Um, as much as, you know, I think things will start to unfreeze and, you know, the, the world will sort of come, start coming back to normal, I feel that business travel and some of these things are still going to be seen as kind of non-essential, right? So, so I don't anticipate, uh, at least this year, having much face-to-face, -face, you know, business, you know, maybe a little bit, but definitely not like, like it used to be. I mean, I've, 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 last year I was on the plane for, you know, 200 days. Uh, so that there's no way that that's happening in my foreseeable future. So we have to make do with what we can. So I think it's going to be a lot of video conference calls. I think it's going to be a lot of, um, 
you know, presentations, webinars, things of that nature. We have to get good at it. We have to find tools. We have to develop tools. You know, lots of companies, of course, working on that. They'll make that situation um, better. I've seen I've seen a bunch of really cool new stuff which is coming out to make remote meetings and remote presentations better. Uh, so I have some hope that technology will ultimately resolve this. Uh, and it's just kind of a shift, right? This shift in in mentality and perception and how you are going to be doing these calls um, in order for them to be more effective. So, but yeah, I don't, I don't think we, I don't think this is a matter of, oh, just wait it out for a couple of months and get back to normal. If anything, normal comes back really, really slowly over a long time. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think it's going to take some time. It's going to be interesting. Uh, maybe we'll have to find a way to adjust and people will just get, have to get much, much better at remote meetings and, and trying to uh, understand each other and, and strike a balance and, and get a deal done. We'll be right back for the rest of the interview. I've had the opportunity to meet and train entrepreneurs in over 30 countries. I found that they're all pretty much the same. Tireless, driven, irrationally optimistic. They may have different accents, but the challenges are always the same. And I wanted to make all of the secrets of Silicon Valley success available to anyone. Accelerated Startup is my blueprint for you to go from idea to product to company. The next time you want to change the world. Make no mistake about it. If you're working on a problem worth solving, by definition, no one has ever done exactly what you're about to do. This book is filled with practical advice that comes from years of blood, sweat and tears in the entrepreneurial trenches. Accelerators and business schools use it as a textbook. Thousands of entrepreneurs have used it as their guiding light to get past the challenges faster. So you want my advice? Grab your ebook, hardcover, paperback, or audiobook version on Amazon or iBooks today. And then send me an email with your questions at asa at golem.net. Let's shift gears a little, heading towards the finish line. Uh, what are some of the most important deal points you focus on? I mean, let's try to generalize a little bit. You've done software distribution deals. You're doing hardware now. What are some of the kind of the general key terms that you're looking for when you're working with partners or, or vendors or, um, you know, anybody that'll be doing distribution for you? There's a thing that I kind of called the raisin. It's a little bit hard to explain. It makes more sense in Russian. So it's like there is a deal always just has this raisin, right? It's like the 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 one thing that you would that would find that is um, you know kind of stands out from all the dough around it. That that comes back to what I said in the beginning. It's like why is the partner doing a deal with you? Like what is like what is in it for them? Like what are they sort of digging out of it? And uh, typically deals can have a lot of milestones and so forth. And you know it's it's not a typical for how business development people sort of plan out like all sorts of renewals. None of that matters. It basically just like you have to figure out the true, like the, the, the one true metric that will make this deal a success, you know, in a year. So you're going to do this deal in a year. What are you going to look at to come back and say, oh, this deal is a success. Let's definitely renew it. And just focus on that specific thing. I, I often, you know, to my lawyers, um, you know, um, dismay, like I often don't care for so many of the terms and the agreements that, you know, yes, of course it could be really bad, but if this deal isn't working, none of this is going to come into play. Like nobody's going to care what your indemnity is if this deal is basically, you know, nonsense uh, or just not performing. If the deal is performing, okay, well, like then you have something to hold on to. Then you can use that particular performance metric in order to be able to extend the deal, scale it, do something else. But when you do the deal at first, 
keep that in mind. Keep that in mind in terms of like what what will be looked back at to assess this deal as a success. And it's not the stuff that's in the term sheets. Oftentimes the stuff in the term sheets, the stuff in the presentations, there's a lot of fluff. It's a lot of like, you know, uh, various targets and so forth. Everything could shift, but it could be something very specific. And I'll give you an idea. Uh, I've done a lot of deal deals with telecoms. That it took me a while to figure this out, but a lot of deals with telecoms only had one metric they truly care about. It's churn. So did the population of people who took advantage of this deal or engage in this partnership churn out less or the same or more. And if you could show that this deal resulted in lower churn for, for the telecom, then you can renew this deal perpetually, you know, because then the value of the deal is the value of the user, which re retained user, right? Which is like a thousand dollars a year, for example, right? For, for, for a cell phone customer, for example. So, but if, you know, you achieved many goals, you had many views and likes and many clicks and so forth, but there is no like underlying, like again, this raisin, right? I don't know why I keep saying raisin. Like to me, to me, that means something like kind of uh, like a treasure that you found. Um, and then if that's the case, then yeah, then, um, then, then you have a deal. And if it's not, then good luck. Yeah, it's a key metric. I think that's, uh, that's really important is to not get overwhelmed by all the details that people tend to focus on and over-engineer contracts and things. So on the same token, you know, can you share maybe some of the common landmines of things that you've seen that kind of blew up deals and that you avoid now at all costs with your experience? There's many lessons, uh, you know, for a longer form podcast, but I'll give you sort of one which, which I found really useful. You need to find the right strata like the right layer of the company to deal with if you're dealing with somebody too low like you're dealing with some junior people some manager or something they typically can't get anything done right they're still going to be they need to be selling you upstream and maybe you don't have anything better uh, as a contact and you have to you have to work that angle that's fine uh, oftentimes people sort of go the opposite the mistake that they make they go to the top they go to the ceo they go to the super senior executive of big companies problem is a lot of those people, like you are, you are peanuts to them. Like they got other, they got other issues, right? And even though they might say, "Yeah, yeah, let's do this deal," like you're still not, like you still don't have the support that you need. In the kind of companies that I dealt with, and this is typically really large companies, telecoms, big OEMs, there is this sweet middle, right? Like a vice president, but not a senior vice president, or you know, like some high level manager or something or rather. And and the reason this is a sweet spot is because these are the people that actually have the pressure on them to get something done, right? These are the people that uh, want their career still ahead of them, right? If you're a CEO of a big Japanese company, like yeah, you're done, like you're not you're not really doing anything anymore. You're just trying not to fuck it up. But if you are vice president at uh, at Sony, right, you still have room to grow. And these are the people that need to execute. They need to actually deliver something so if you find a person like that and you understand their motivation and this person becomes your champion for the deal that will pave the way for the deal happening but if you if you get stuck too low or too high yeah you're going to be sending a lot of useless emails yeah that's quite interesting so let's finish it off strong i always ask this is you know what are some of the non-obvious things that come with experience that uh maybe i didn't ask you but you know that you can you have a sixth sense about uh, something coming up, and you only learned it by making the mistake many many times yourself. If it sounds too good to be true, then it's too good to be true. So like, uh, I've gotten overexcited about things which definitely seem like they're going to be huge and you know unbelievably useful to us, only to have them sort of fall on my face. Whereas things that maybe I wasn't as excited about, but over time you know kind of working them uh, worked out quite well. So as a small company. You know, 
uh, somebody comes to you and it says, you know, HP, we did this deal with HP and HP says, oh, they're going to put you on every one of their laptops. Okay, that sounds amazing. Well, except like you might not realize that, um, you know, what happens with vast majority of those laptops is they go to businesses and the first thing the businesses does is it wipes the image on it. And so all of your pre-installs and all of the stuff that you've accomplished, you know, like 90% of those things go out the, out the window and you end up not seeing any of the benefit that you're seeing, right? But early in the early days, especially talking to some of their business development folks, the numbers they throw at you is like the total number of laptops they ship per year, which is, uh, I don't know how many, like 100 million, whatever, right? You, you know better. Ten, tens of millions, yes. Tens of millions, right, whatever, right? And you're like, oh, wow, that's going like, to blow my socks off, right? That's going to be awesome. Yeah, it's probably not, right? So too good to be true. It's too good to be true. That's a good one, yeah. I, I, I live by that as well. Alex, thank you for your time. Thank you for your thoughts. I think our audience is going to really appreciate and learn from you. And um, great success with your newest startup that's not so new anymore, but uh, is finally coming out of stealth and shipping product. Thank you. Thanks for checking out this episode of Accelerated Startup Academy. If you haven't yet, now is the perfect time to hit that subscribe button. If you'd like to learn more about working with me, visit golom.net, G-O-L-O-M-B.net. Stay safe, productive, and support the people you love and those who you don't know yet but are in a position to help. See you on the next episode.